not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. <coughs> food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Okay, well, um, as a kind of church growth strategy, obviously these talks haven't been terribly successful. The number seems to drop. <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll try not to take it too personally. <laughs> so I'll try, no, no, that's fine. I just want to see the head other things they have to get off to. Uh, so, as we've done we over the last couple of times, I'm expecting there should be plenty of time for some questions and discussion uh, after this talk. And my guess is it might be the kind of talk that will generate a bit of that. Um, uh, you know, often when you start a talk, you feel like you need a bit of an introduction, but in this talk, I hardly feel like I need an introduction. Same-sex marriage is uh, in the news a lot. It's something that we hear about, that Christians, I think, think are thinking about. And apart from saying, what, what I want us to think about tonight is how do we approach the issue of same-sex marriage? as Christians, uh, that's the introduction. What, we, what I want to show you tonight is 
the way in which the gospel shapes our response. And so just to remind you of some of the things that we've looked at already this weekend that I'm sure are familiar with you, but let me state them again. Some of the gospel assumptions that should shape our thinking about uh, Christians and society. Uh, first of all, that things aren't the way they should be. Uh, something's wrong. The gospel is about how God is fixing things up, and obviously if God's fixing things up, then it's because things aren't the way they're meant to be. Uh, we've already thought about some examples of that uh, today. Uh, you see it in the life of Jesus. Uh, twice Jesus, we, that we're told Jesus weeps. Once over the tomb of a friend of Lazarus and once over the city of Jerusalem. And then three times actually, then of course, as he approaches his own death as well. Each of those indicating that things are not right. So things aren't the way they should be. And of course, if things aren't the way they should be, then it actually implies there is a way that they should be. There is a baseline. God has designed the world in a particular way, and in a whole lot of areas of life, it's He who sets the pattern for how life should be lived and how things should be. Now, to us as Christians, that seems like just such a normal idea, but we need to realise that's a radical idea in the world in which we live. Uh, most people around us think that things are whatever we make them to be. However we decide things should be. That um, life is DIY. Uh, we design it and we put things into practice and we decide how things should turn out. But uh, the Gospel says that it's God who sets the baseline. Thirdly, we can't, we can't fix things up. God has and God is and God will, will fix things up through Jesus. The gospel is not about our self-improvement. It's not even about all of us working together to make things better. It's about the fact that God has sent Jesus to live and die and rise again. That Jesus will return. It's about how God restores his broken world. And so there is a time coming when things will be as they should be. For about that in both the talks so far, uh, the hope of God's kingdom, that things will be fully and finally restored one day. But before that happens, God is now gathering his people to live for his kingdom. He's included us in his plan. We know what he's doing and we're actually called to begin to live out what God will do fully and completely in the kingdom. So there are the gospel assumptions uh, that I think come through in the passage we're going to look at and which need to shape our thinking about marriage and sexuality and same-sex marriage as well. So let's fill out each of those uh, ideas or some of those ideas thinking particularly about sex and marriage. Over the years, Christians have done a pretty good job of communicating to the rest of the world that we think sex is bad. But that's not at all what the Bible says. The Bible talks about sex as something that God has created, that's a good gift to be celebrated and enjoyed. God blesses marriage, and sex and marriage are part of God's basic pattern for human life. Uh, part of his baseline. So in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, Adam, remember, has a whole host of animals presented to him in Genesis 1, but he, in Genesis 2 rather, but he can find no helper, no companion, no friend, and so God creates Eve. And Adam recognises Eve as his, as God's gift to him. And he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's actually in the difference between Adam and Eve, he is man, she is woman, that Adam recognises this is my proper companion, this is my helper, this is the person who is like me, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and yet 
different to me in such a way that there's a God-made companionship and unity there. And we're told that's the basis for marriage. For this reason, because of this similarity and difference, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And of course, flowing out of that, indicated back in Genesis chapter 1, is the idea that sex and marriage and companionship and children are all wrapped up together in this amazingly complex gift that God gives that is so basic to his design to, for humanity. This most intimate and intense relationship of marriage sealed by sexual relationship reaches down to the very depths of our identity. And it's the way in which humanity grows. Uh, certainly bearing children, reproducing, procreating, but not just uh, the physical production of children, but raising children. And as we thought briefly at the end of the last session about family and what's God's design for family, our family is created by God based on marriage, secured by marriage, as the way in which children will develop and grow up and be trained, and human culture will be passed on. And so marriage is the very key uh, of the stability of society. It creates the family bond in which people develop. So those words of Adam to Eve about Eve, this is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, is really the key to the Christian view of marriage. That marriage is to be an exclusive, faithful, heterosexual relationship. And that's on the assumption that being human is not something we make up for ourselves. That sex and relationships are not something that we're free to redesign, but that God sets the baseline. But of course, things have gone wrong. Uh, and we see that in this passage. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 9, Paul warns, Don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And so 1 Corinthians 6 lists out uh, some examples of those ways of life and those behaviours which God refuses to accept. Those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. It lists sexual sins, issues about worship, possessions, uh, words, relationships, all of that corrupted by human sin. And uh, clearly it includes homosexuality, but not only homosexuality. Uh, all these behaviours, including sexual sins which lie outside of God's pattern for love. And we need to realise that there's a huge gap between the Christian approach to thinking about sexual morality and the common thought in Australia. Uh, most people in Australia basically think as long as nobody gets hurt, then it's fairly free to do whatever you want in terms of sexual behaviour and relationships. But Christians believe that God has set a pattern, that it's God who sets right and wrong. And that when that pattern is broken, people do get hurt, even if it's not really obvious. And that sex and marriage are to be the very basis of a human society, and when they go wrong, uh, that actually hurts everybody in the society. 
And more than that, it's something that God will judge. So those verses say, those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. There are actions and lifestyle which don't line up with God's way and so won't be included in the kingdom. Now let me at this point say that we need to remember that there is a significant and important difference between facing a temptation or an inclination to do something and the action itself. And people will say from what I've already what I've already said, that Christians outright condemn everybody uh, who has a homosexual inclination, for instance. And it's important that we recognise that uh, human sexuality is very complex. It's wrapped up with our own personal identities. And actions and inclinations sexual inclinations and sexual behaviour interact with one another in all sorts of different ways. And all of us in various ways uh, find that we're tempted to break the pattern of sexuality and more widely just God's pattern for living. And so the fact that people uh, face a homosexual temptation they find that they have an orientation that way, however that's come about, is not in itself to be considered as sinful, it's not to be condemned. In fact, if you find that that's something that you face, it may be same-sex orientation, it may be other issues about uh, sexual temptation, sexual behaviour, uh, you do need to talk to someone about it. Uh, talk to Scott or one of the elders, uh, get some support, get some help, help the, get them to help you work through this area. It, it's a, any area of sexual struggle is a difficult thing uh, to deal with by yourself. And you need to find some help. And the reason I say that is because what I want to go on and talk about, I guess, is a social issue, uh, something that's debated about same-sex marriage. But it's important to remember that all of us are caught up personally in this corruption and distortion that's come because of sin. Now, Paul also says that there are these activities, as well as there being activities that will not inherit the kingdom of God, that the people to whom he writes, the Corinthians, have been changed. And so verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6 Having listed out the various things, uh, that those who do those things will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says in verse 11, that is what some of you were. Uh, the gospel is not about the fact that things are bad, it's about the fact that God is fixing them up. And so he says, that is what some of you were. You used to live this way. And then he's got these great words about how they've been changed. You have been washed, you have been sanctified, that is, you've been set apart for God, you have been justified, that is, you've been put right with God. Uh, Christians have a new identity, a new reality, a new life. Why? Because of the Lord Jesus and because of the Spirit. You have been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I'm certainly not saying that Christians have no sin, that they can do no wrong, that they don't struggle with perhaps some of these issues, but Christians have a fundamental change of direction to go to now living God's way. And so to the Corinthians, Paul can say, some of you were living so obviously against God, outrightly rejecting his way, but now you've been changed including in sexuality. Some of you were sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards. Some of you were that. But now you have been washed. And because of that, because God is at work fixing things up 
And he's doing that in his people. How we live matters. Now the Corinthian church uh, was inclined to think that how they lived didn't really matter very much. Most likely they thought that what God was really concerned about was their spirit and their body didn't matter to him much at all. It was pretty irrelevant to their relationship with God. And so in verse 13, Paul uh, has this line, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. Uh, and in, in my uh, version of the NIV, which is the most recent one, the translators have actually added the words in, you say, at the beginning. But I don't think that's, in, if you've got the older NIV, I don't think it's in the old NIV, is it? No. But I think the translators are right here. I think what Paul's doing is quoting the Corinthians saying back to them, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy them both. That is, it doesn't matter what you do in terms of eating, but by implication also it doesn't matter what you do with your body in terms of sexuality because it's all going to be destroyed. But Paul responds, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. How we behave in our bodies does matter. And so Christians are to live differently, including in the area of sexuality. So Paul says, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Uh, verse 19, towards the end, you are not your own. You have bought at a price, therefore honour God with your body. And what we've seen already today should make it really clear why it matters. We are made to serve God, including with our bodies. And God is redeeming all of us, including our bodies. And we're to be the sign of the dawn of the kingdom including what we do with our bodies. Now, the city of Corinth had a fairly wild reputation. And how they lived um, reflected their city, or well, the way the Corinthian church wanted to live, the set kind of sexual morality that was going on in the Corinthian church, and their attitude that they could do whatever they wanted with their bodies, reflected the city they lived in. But Paul saying to them, no, you should stand out. You shouldn't be like the society around you. And, and we've got a big chance to be like that as well. Uh, because there's an increasing gap between uh, the way most Australians think about sexuality and marriage and the way the Bible talks about it, then we actually have a great opportunity to stand out as different in this area. See, if um, a couple of generations ago, Australian society was generally kind of prudish and hung up and repressed about sex, it's not really any longer, is it? Uh, now, Australian society is indulged, indulgent and obsessed and confused about sex. And we can be a community which shows something different. We can be a community where we strive to be faithful in our marriages. Where our young women find that they're respected and aren't expected, and aren't expected uh, to dress and behave uh, in that kind of launch style that is assumed in so many parts of Australian society. We can be the kind of group of people where young men can grow up not, it not being assumed that porn is a normal part of growing up as a young man. We can be the kind of community where uh, singles don't assume that they should just sleep around in order to get some experience or to have any sort of friendship. We can be the kind of community where people who find they have uh, sexual temptations and sexual struggles, can resist sin and build friendships on God's pattern. 
In Ephesians 5, Paul says to the Ephesians, Among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. And that's what the church should be like. It should be the community of people who are committed to living God's way. Now what we also see in this passage is that the church is called to discipline itself. Uh, so in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 5, um, we're told, uh, we didn't read this part, but uh, we're told that there is going on in the Corinthian church a case of incest. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Uh, it's shocking. And Paul says it's shocking. He says it's so shocking that the people in Corinth around about would be shocked by it. Uh, even pagans don't tolerate this, he says in verse 1. But the church seems to even be a bit proud of it. But Paul calls them, do not be proud of it. You need to be ashamed of it. You should go into mourning and you should do something about it. You should discipline this person. Uh, verse 2, shouldn't you have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? And you, you do that, you discipline this person, put him out of fellowship with the hope that he'll come to his right mind. Uh, so, at the end of verse 5, hand him over to Satan, uh, which is to put him outside of the church and outside of the protection of the name of Jesus, so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. See, if someone keeps on with the old life while claiming to have the new life, it reaches a point where the church must not put up with that process. There must be mourning and Discipline. Now, we're not talking here about a genuine struggle for someone who really wants to live differently but finds that hard. We're talking about here about someone who really openly re-embraces their old life, their old ways. And you know, I want to be part of a church that takes the way I behave and the way other people behave Seriously. Uh, I want to be part of a church where my friends ask me how my marriage is going. I want to be part of a church where people won't accept trashy views of sex being expressed and won't allow people to live the way our society lives in terms of marriage and sexuality. So how Christians live matters. It matters to God. It should matter to our community. Uh, so in verse 11 of chapter 5, Paul says, I'm writing to you, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother, but is sexually immoral, immoral or greedy, an idolatrous, slanderer, drunken, swindler. Do not even eat with such people. But it's very different if we're talking about people who are outsiders who don't claim to be followers of Jesus, who aren't part of the church. So Paul says in verses 9 to 10, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you have to leave the world. See, how a non-Christian live, lives matters. God will judge. That's what Paul, Paul finish, finishes chapter 5. God will judge those outside. Now God will judge. But that's not our job. Our task as the church is to discipline the church. It's not our task to discipline the world. And that's a very significant point. 
Now, how does all of this relate to same-sex marriage? Uh, all, of, all of what I've said and what you see coming out of 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 sets the foundation for how we respond to same-sex marriage. Uh, first of all, we have to recognise that we are countercultural uh, as Christians. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Danny Katz, who's a um, columnist who has a column in the Good Weekend most weekends, uh, often very funny, uh, had a column and I, I read it at the time and I meant to keep it and I didn't and I've never been able to find it again. Uh, so I can't, I'll just have to roughly tell it to you. I'm sure he said it more funnily than I, I'm going to. But it was, you know, the columns and a, 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 a pretend, I assume it's a bit pretend anyway, although maybe the people writing are real, but they know the kind of advice they're going to get. Advice column for, uh, an advice, a letter of an advice column, column for a young woman uh, who says she doesn't want to have sex before marriage, but because of that she can't find a boyfriend. And uh, Danny Katz's answer was something along these lines. Uh, sex is like pizza. All sorts of people like all sorts of different flavours and you should probably try some different flavours. You might find that you like some of them. Now, it was meant to be funny uh, and the way he wrote it was funny, but humour often reveals the truth. Uh, and that is the way in which lots of people in our society view sexuality. It's at the same level as choosing a pizza topping. It's a matter of individual taste and personal preference. And you've got as much right to criticise uh, my pizza topping as you do to criticise my choice of sexual behaviour. But of course, Christians know that sex has been designed by God for intimacy, not for profligacy. For heterosexual committed faithfulness. And as we live that out, we are being counter cultural. And we just need to recognise that and not be shocked by it and not be surprised by it, but actually recognise this is what our calling is, especially this time in Australia's history. On this issue particularly, we just have to live differently. And that means hard work. In previous generations, on the area of marriage and sexuality, the general social consensus, at least to some extent, supported the Christian view. Uh, it doesn't mean that the way people actually lived supported the Christian view, but at least the general consensus of what was the proper thing to do was broadly in line with the Christian view. But it's just not like that anymore. Uh, I was talking to a student at college just this week, who's involved with the youth group in his church, leading the youth group, and he was talking to me about the fact that he's finding he has to talk to the youth group about homosexuality and uh, same-sex relationships and those sort of things, because lots of the kids in his group are into the show Glee, mm -hmm. uh, and that's a show that celebrates uh, sexuality in general and, and a fairly free sexual behaviour, and especially uh, gay relationships. And you watch Glee, and they don't, those sort of relationships don't feel cheap and nasty. Uh, they actually are glamorised. And so he finds he has to try and undo that as he talks to his youth group about that sort of issue. So we have to work hard to communicate something different just within ourselves. We have to be ready to be countercultural. And then secondly, we do what we can to love our neighbour. Uh, if heterosexual marriage is God's design, then it can't be good for our society to promote same-sex marriage. Uh, that It will affect our society, it will affect our families, it will affect our children. It will embed into society and promote a rejection of God's design. And so I don't think we should at all be supporting same-sex marriage. I think we should do what we can to oppose it. But we need to recognise that as we do that, we're not trying to judge our neighbours. That's not our job. We're not trying to somehow extend church discipline to the whole of society. 
We're not trying to force on society a Christian ethic on a society that's a pluralist one. Uh, the reason we oppose same-sex marriage is because it's not going to be good for our society. But that doesn't mean that we're going to try and stamp out uh, any sort of gay behaviour, uh, any gay relationships. Uh, I don't think we could do that, and I don't think that's what we're called to do. <coughs> How do we oppose same-sex marriage? Well, you might want to talk about that a little bit more, but uh, it's obviously a government decision, a legal decision, and uh, it's going to be voted on again probably sometime this year. And so we need to tell our members of parliament our view, write letters, um, put our views in letters to the newspaper, speak out and support Christians who speak out on the issue. Uh, and certainly Christians who are out there speaking on this issue do find it difficult. They find they get attacked uh, quite ferociously. And so the odd message to them, if you don't know them, an email or something just to Tell them that you're glad that they've done that and that you're praying for them. I, I think it's a great idea. But more important than that kind of activity is that we as a church need to bear witness to God's design and to God's redemption. And so we need to pray for uh, honesty and grace and discipline and courage and faithfulness uh, to live God's way in a world that isn't. That is by far the most important thing we can do in the face of the sexual confusion of our society. Quite a few years ago now, uh, when Liz and I lived in Sydney, uh, we had uh, a next door neighbour, uh, her name was Karen, and she was in, very actively involved in uh, the Catholic Church at Redford, which uh, is at least then, was quite a radical uh, Catholic parish. Well, she met, uh, she met a guy called Brian, and they got engaged. And they, because of the city, because of the part of the city they lived in, and uh, and the kind of work they did, they would have had they had lots of people and lots of friends with that kind of Danny Katz pizza topping view, pizza topping view of uh, sexuality. We were invited along to their wedding. And, and, and it was great. Uh, they spoke, I, I can't remember if it was actually part of the service or at the reception, the two kind of blended into each other anyway. And, and that when they spoke, this is roughly what they said, or part of what they said. Uh, they said, what we're doing today in getting married is radical. Uh, we know there are lots of people who can't see the point of getting married. For whom getting married seems out of date. But that's exactly why we are getting married. Uh, our society often scorns faithfulness and celebrates unfaithfulness. And we want to show that we are committed to each other for life. And we want to be different uh, on that matter to the world around us. Uh, that's not exactly the words they said, but that was basically what they said in this, uh, in this wedding speech. That's the vision. Instead of being kind of embarrassed about our views, or caving into pressure and conforming, or trying to get out there and, and discipline society, we have to see that we're countercultural. That we're called to live and act differently. That we're committed to marriage and committed to being sexual in God's way. Not because we're old fashioned, not because we're repressed, not because we're legalistic, but because we're part of the kingdom. And because we long to live God's way to reflect His character. And we know that is right and good and beautiful. Well, how about I pray and then see if there's questions and discussion? Let's pray. Father, first of all, we want to admit that. Uh, we are people who are affected by sin, who have been caught up in sin, and no doubt in the areas of sex and relationships as well as other areas. Uh, we thank you that in Christ there is 
washing and sanctification and justification. We thank you that we can say about ourselves, uh, in Christ, that is what we were, uh, but we have been changed. Lord, there may be some of us uh, who in this area in particular of, of our sexual behaviour are still struggling. Uh, and we pray uh, for your help for them, and we pray that we as a community might uh, be supportive uh, of of one another in our various temptations and weaknesses. Father, we pray for churches in Australia, and I pray especially for uh, Port Macquarie Presbyterian Church, that we might honour marriage, that you might help us to be faithful in our marriages and not just formally faithful, but genuinely loving to one another. Uh, that, that we would embrace and love and care for uh, those who are single and perhaps long to be married or uh, widows and widows and miss the companionship of marriage. Father, we pray that within the church they would find companionship and welcome and love and care. And Father, we pray that the kind of way that we live uh, and the way our relationships operate might stand out to those around us and they would see that we are different because of your work in us. And so Father, we, we pray that The push towards same-sex marriage might be halted in Australia. We really do think that it's better for our society if that doesn't happen. Uh, and we pray that you strengthen and uh, give courage to those Christians who are particularly active in speaking about that. But Lord, give them wisdom to speak in a way that reflects the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus uh, as they talk about an issue that is uh, such a sensitive one in our society. And uh, so, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Is to let them know that they that we love them, and uh, and that they don't need to go uh, looking for sexual relationships in order to find acceptance and security and asylum. Uh, I, mean, I think that's one of the big steps, and then also just uh, uh, encouraging them to be part of peer groups, church youth groups, and other peer groups where there is lots of positive interaction with peers um, without a heavy dose of, um, of, of pressure and expectation for sexual relationships and pairing off all of those sort of things. Um, I think. I guess it depends exactly on, on what limits you have around your children's behaviour. Um, I think Liz and I tend to think that as our kids are teenagers, we, on this area of relationships and sexuality, we more want to talk through with them the issues than make rules for them. Uh, because we recognise unless we keep them locked up at home, um, you know, they go to school each day and in the end we don't have much control of what they do at school, for instance. And so it's a matter of trying to help them mature rather than have really strict boundaries about you know, you can't have a boyfriend until you're 18 or whatever thing I'd really like perhaps to be on the same level. Yeah, that's very <laughs> kind of productive. That just makes them Sorry? That just makes them Yeah, exactly, that's right. And and so try to aim for uh, developing maturity. But, I mean, having said that, different families have different styles, and different children do need different boundaries. I recognise that. You know? So, um, yeah, there'd be a few things I'd say. But, yeah, I don't all feel like an expert, but I suspect you never feel like an expert. Um, 
And the body up there, that, that's why I'm mentioning this. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm very fortunate I'm not in that situation. Mm. I mean, I think that's the kind of area where, not, not only for single parents, but certainly for single parents, again, the church as a living, active community can be such a blessing. Um, I mean, I don't think it's only for single parents, living just for us as a family, for, for Liz and I, uh, you know, we are so thankful for the various people around church who take an interest in our kids. Uh, I guess two of the kind of groups that we think are particularly important for them are the teenagers and young adults who are just a bit ahead of them, and who are really modelling for them in lots of ways, very godly relationships and a great deal of wisdom, and we're really glad that our kids get to see you know, these kids who are a few years older than them, um, you know, starting to go out with people and all that, but doing it, yeah, in a sensible way. Uh, and the other thing is just some of the parents who probably are a little bit younger than us, um, who've taken an interest in our kids and are kind of somewhere between big, being big brothers and younger aunts and uncles. Um, yeah, now I don't know whether they've particularly talked to our kids about boyfriends and girlfriends and those sort of things, but they certainly, mean, especially my daughter is um, uh, perhaps like lots of young women, she's a good chatter. And so, um, you know, she, she's very happy to sit and talk to some of the young mothers around the church. And again, I think the kind of discipleship that happens there is really valuable. Um, and I can see that if you're a single parent, that would be even more valuable that you're, if you're a single mum, that your son has some, uh, some of the men around church who take particular interest in you. Uh, I don't think so, I, I think a lot of this is not just the kind of, you know, let's sit down and have a deep and meaningful about <laughs> birds and the bees. I mean, that doesn't really do much unless it's in a bigger context of healthy relationships and good patterns anyway people that they respect. Um, and so it's a lot of that groundwork which takes years and years of just building good relationships. So to find out more about the thinking about uh, homosexuality, um, it's um, <clears throat> interesting, uh, you know, one of the uh, issues <clears throat> that's talked about is uh, the Christians are sometimes ridiculed for um, <clears throat> uh, inferring or stating that homosexuality is something which can be reversed. Um, and, um, you, you know, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, when passage that you've been talking about, when Paul lists off the kinds of people that there were in Corinth in the church there, and he says that neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, etc., etc., will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. And so, the, you know, you, you could reasonably, I think, argue that what Paul's saying is that those homosexual offenders and no longer homosexual offenders in the church. But it's been, um, they're not offending in that way now. And uh, our society is saying, well, that's impossible or that just goes against their nature. And he gives the reason for it, their washing and their sanctification in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So it seems to be something that's happened as a result of them becoming Christians. Um, I guess books could be written about that. Yes, I'm sure they could be happening. And Paul doesn't any hinges to what, they, what issues those people went through. Yep. Um, you might have some thoughts on this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first of all, I've, I've, I mean, I focus particularly on this being a list of behaviours. I don't think he's saying necessarily that 
none of you are any longer tempted by this. Uh, I mean, whatever you think Romans 7 is about, I think Galatians 5 is very clear that life in the life in the spirit is still a struggle with <coughs> nature. And you know, the idea that Christians aren't tempted, uh, I mean, all of us are going to say, well, that's not what we've got through. We're all faced temptations in all sorts of ways. And if you've come from a lifestyle, whatever, however it comes about, of sexual immorality or idolatry or adultery or homosexuality or stealing or greediness, uh, the fact that you're washed clean and change, there is a real change. I don't want to, under, I don't, I don't want to underemphasize at all the real change that the Lord brings uh, through the work of the Spirit. It still, bring, it still leaves us with struggles and wrestles. And so uh, I wouldn't use this verse to claim that therefore uh, simply becoming a Christian or having therapy or something necessarily provides a new sexual orientation for everybody who has had a homosexual background. Um, I think they're a real change. I think some people uh, in that area of temptation, as in other areas of temptation, do find quite significant change and reorientation, but others don't. Um, so I don't think there's any guarantee that there won't be a hard struggle. Um, but there's a change in action. There is a change in action. Yeah, yeah, there is a change in action. Yeah. Um, and we need to expect that from one another and call one another to that. Uh, and so I don't think the Bible will allow Christians to just accept that on any area of sin, another Christian to say, I just can't help it. Um, I mean, we have to recognise the, the, we often feel as if we can't help it. And we can appreciate that in all sorts of areas of sin, someone can feel as if they can't help it. Um, but we actually have to help them see they can help it. But we're called as their brothers and sisters to, to support them and help them and care, them, care for them and help them make that change. Um, is that the kind of area you were thinking of? Or do you want to push the question a, a bit more? Yeah, I think that's, um, that's helpful. The uh, important thing that Paul adds there is it's by the Spirit. God, this actually happens. So, uh, so, so therefore, um, uh, it, it impacts on the way that we uh, approach um, change in our society. I mean, I, you know, I remember back in the days when there was the sort of march up Oxford Street in order by the Christians in order to protest against the homosexuals mm. and uh, thinking that that was probably not the right approach. Uh, some some people will say that on the issue of gay marriage, like the Labor Party has just endorsed it and I think you know Kevin Rudd's um, sister resigned from the ALP because she was saying that it was not in accordance with the Ten Commandments. Other people are saying we just need to get back to a Christian society. Other people are saying that we need to march up Oxford Street. But it seems from this that it's about actually sharing the gospel with people, that we're going to have the, uh, the, the motivation and the inclination to want to make the change by the Spirit of yeah. God, as Paul yeah. says. Yeah, and so I mean, that's, that's the logic, isn't it, of him saying, um, you know, don't associate with the sexually immoral. Not reforming the outsider because that would be, you're not called to, to discipline the outsider. Because uh, we don't expect change in the outside. And that's why we need to recognise that we are called to be countercultural, um, which means living differently uh, and not expecting that the world's going to line up with us. Now, you might think, well, why, why would I think? Having said that, why would I say oppose same-sex marriage at all? That's why um, I didn't spend a long time on it, I guess, in the end. But saying the reason I think we'd oppose it is because it embeds in our society a pattern that isn't God's pattern. And so if we can stop that happening, well, that's a good thing, I think, to try and stop it happening. Um, but if same-sex marriage is brought in in Australia, and uh, I think the pundits are saying it probably won't happen this year, although there'll be a, 
probably a few bills introduced to Parliament, the numbers probably won't go for it. But it's hard to imagine that there won't come a time in some years' time when it is brought in. I might, I might be wrong. Um, but if it is brought in, it's not going to be the end of the world for us. Because uh, we're not we're called to be countercultural. And so we'll just keep on doing that. And we'll keep on trying to love our neighbours in whatever way we can. Um, and um, I, so I guess to put it back in the categories I was talking about this morning, uh, opposing same-sex marriage is at the level of preserving the society from being, to stopping it from becoming as bad as it could be, which is one of the things God does, and so I think it's right for us to try and preserve. But it's not the same as redeem. We don't think that we're redeeming society. We don't think we're winning the soul of Australia by stopping same-sex marriage. Uh, it's the gospel that will do that. And um, can I just uh, add, Scott said that there's many people who just say, you know, we're absolutely crazy, we can't expect that something like homosexual or a lesbian could change their orientation and act any way other than that. And there is a sense that you can sort of really understand them saying that if they haven't experienced the work of the Spirit. And in fact, it's probably pretty right that. It would be unusual and unlikely that they would, unless they had been born again. Yes. But I guess I want to say there are people who come from yes. same-sex relationships and homosexual yes. lifestyles who've become Christians and have found very yes. significant change. Yes. There's others who haven't, yes. who have stopped the behaviour and have and have felt, you know, have changed. But have felt have found a lifelong struggle with temptation, yeah. and we need to, and, and we mustn't burden those people with some sort of sense of, oh, you're not really a Christian, or you should yes. just pray about it, and it should all be fixed up. Yes, um, so, yes, there is real change, but for some of us, uh, on some issues, that change is very hard work, uh, and is a is a lifelong struggle. Um, other people, you know, you can probably think about this for yourself in your own life, with particular sins that at some time in your life, you know, to use the old Puritan term, are besetting sins that they're really a struggle for you, and then in the Lord's mercy that, you know, they're not so much after a while. Um, but then you have some other friend who, on that area of life, just keeps struggling on. You know, so. so, yeah, I think there is real change, but just got to be careful we don't... Uh, overstated to the harm of people who still have a struggle. Um, surely that's why um, it's probably better to see the passage there and certainly Galatians 5, not so much talking about behaviour but identity. Um, Paul seems to be setting up this is what it means to be in the flesh, this is what it means to be in the spirit. You're no longer in the flesh, your identity is now with Christ in the spirit. Uh, so your behaviour should therefore follow. But I don't think he's talking about behaviour, because then we have this issue that you've just been talking about, but what about those people who do still perform this behaviour, whether it's a besetting sin or how you want to describe it? So I wonder if the solution is an identity issue, and I think that's what Paul was actually talking about. Yeah, so I think Paul's um, strategy normally is to get people to grasp their new identity in Christ. You've died and risen again in Christ, therefore live differently. Uh, that it's not immediately going to uh, command and demand about how you live, but starting with the indicative, starting with what God has done for you and how you've been changed from your new your, You have been washed and sanctified and justified. Um, but in this passage, and in uh, Galatians 5, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, Romans uh, 6, he is talking about concrete behaviours that will flow out of that. It's now meant to be order. Well, I think that's the difference. I mean, just to take Galatians 5, that's the difference in the description it gives, the, uh, the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. Um, the very language, it, it's not a comparison of behaviours. The very language is suggesting different categories. Um, 
I, I tend to think of it a little bit like um, uh, the Lion King. Um, what's it? Uh, Simba. Simba is a lion, but when he runs away from the pride, he's lost in the bush. He's uh, hanging out with uh, Pumba and um, I think of those guys, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. <He's> not, anyway, <laughs> you know the uh, But he's not uh, acting like a lion. He's eating grass, he's acting like a water, and his girlfriend has to come out and say, hang on, you're a lion and you need to be over here doing this, acting like a lion. <laughs> the issue is he never stops being a lion, he just forgets about it. He, he, he's lost his identity. Uh, and I, I suspect that's what Paul's talking about, particularly in relation to God, that uh, we need to be reminded of what our, now that you are in Christ, you have a new identity, you're in the spirit, and in the flesh is not a um, this sinful nature, I think is a bad translation, it's, yep. you are no longer in the nature of the flesh in Adam, in the past, you're now in the spirit, and this should bring a new behaviour, but I don't starting for No, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's because of it's because of what God has done in Christ. And it's actually not only because of what he's done, but it's understanding what what has happened to you that will be the starting point for a new behaviour. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we it's been a long day. <laughs> <laughs>